You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. How many threads connect the residents to a building out of the darkness into the light? I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, my guest is Jenny Fagan, the award-winning novelist, poet, screenwriter, and playwright. She's here to discuss her novel, Looking Booth. Jenny, so nice to see you. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Nice to see you, too. So what I'd like to do with your permission is I believe that there's two stories when I sit down to have a discussion with a writer or a novelist. One is the book itself and inside the covers of the book. The second story, which also fascinates me, is the story outside the covers of the book, your personal stories. Let's talk a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? Where did you come from? And how did that all lead to you becoming, in my estimation, a really talented writer? Um, firstly, sorry for the squeak. That was my cat beam off, pushing her way into the room. She doesn't want to miss out, so that was what that noise was. Um, a little bit about me. Um, I was born in a Victorian psychiatric hospital, uh, and I was taken into the local authority care system where I grew up. So I grew up in all kinds of places all over Scotland. By the time I was 16, I'd moved well over 30 times. I'd had four different legal names. So I had a very, very extreme upbringing and I have essentially been traveling constantly and mostly on my own all my life. So observing people and the stories they told about themselves and each other and me, is something that has been a huge part of my life for as long as I can remember. I was I was a child of the state. I was raised by the state, and that's a, a very particular way to be uh, institutionalized in a way. It is an institution. Um, yeah, I I guess I was voiceless in the system. I'm voiceless in a lot, a lot of the places that I lived. And so I wrote my first poem when I was seven for, for no reason at all. I was living in a little caravan park next to a coal mine in Scotland. And there was a library van that would come around. would right. come around right. once, once every few weeks. And I would borrow their books. And I decided, I decided to write a poetry collection for no reason other than I, I clearly had uh, what we'd, we would say over here is ideas above your station and um yeah i wrote four or five poems in a little book printed them out by hand and the thing that was so striking to me was i could go back later on and see the words and for somebody who was constantly moving who had no permanence not even in my name to be able to go back and see the words was a huge thing and i was massively massively captured by all storytellers, anybody who could tell a story had my attention when I was a kid. So I think it's always been in me. I think I was born like this and I've, I've worked hard at it. I want to mention another storyteller and I'll tell you why. I'm, while I'm reading your book, I'm also reading just for my own edification, just to have something else to read. Um, Stephen King's new book called Billy Summers. And in, oh, I've not read it yet. And I, in, love, I love the book Stephen King. And in the book, the character says... Because the character who's a, an assassin in the book is also writing his own story as a cover while he's waiting to do the assignment. And he says, and I'm quoting hopefully directly, any writer who goes public with his or her work is courting danger. Would you agree with that? I think anybody who goes public with anything these days is courting danger. And yes, I think any writer worth anything actually should be. Now you have in your book, you have also William Burroughs. And he's, and this also fascinates me, one, because he's in your book, Looking Booth, but also he says, when I'm writing my clothes are off and I'm exposing myself. I, fa I was fascinated by having him in your book, but also just that observation. Well, you want to kind of comment on that, too, about exposing yourself when you sit down to, to create a, a work of art, in a sense? 
I think that unless you're willing to do something that isn't ordinarily done right. in your day-to-day -day life, there isn't much point to writing. And the times where my writing always developed and I knew that I was doing something that was really going to connect with people were always the moments where I was really uncomfortable with how raw I had been. But I really understood that as a process, that is a huge part of my job to be able to convey emotion and vulnerability and anger and all the things that we're not meant to talk about. That's what writers talk about. They talk about the things that you can't go into the shop and say, and you know, your wife doesn't want to hear and the neighbors just, right. you know, would be freaked out. We're there to take that space. On the cover of your book, there's a short comment from Ian Rankin. Now, why do I mention that? Because years ago, I did a TV interview with Ian Rankin when he came to New York and he said something that always stayed in my mind because we're talking about crime fiction. We're talking about Rebus and Ian Rankin. He said, if you want to know about a place, read its crime fiction. When we read your book, what are we going to learn about Edinburgh? So there are two cities in Edinburgh. There's the city above, above the ground and there's the city below the ground. It's a very wealthy city and it's a very poor city. It's a very ancient historical city and it's a very violent and brutal city and those things all coexist so years ago i was staying in cairo in egypt right and i was reading the yukubian building by ala alsani and it was wonderful to be walking around cairo reading about the things that the tourists were never going to hear about and i adore cities and i love hearing about what the real people are doing in their life. So I moved to Edinburgh when I was about three years old and I've lived here on and off most of my life. I have a very love-hate relationship with the place. But I I wanted to tell the stories that I wasn't seeing being told in other places. You know, you can bowl up in any pub in Edinburgh and nine times out of ten you're going to find a great storyteller and they're just going to be sat at the end of the bar having a pint. Um, the people I was interested in were were not all the, was the ones that I was able to find. So that was that was what I went looking for. I I went looking for my Edinburgh. Well, you know? I think the reader's going to find it too. My guest is Jenny Fagan. The book is called Looking Booth. Now, the what fascinates me in terms of the art and craft of storytelling is how you constructed this book, and then the corollary for me is as a reader, as a reviewer. How do we deconstruct what you wrote? Because what I try to do with any time I sit down with the writer, I want to learn something. I want to be educated because mm -hmm. a lot of stuff in the book besides the pronunciations of the people and the places are new to me and new to American audience. I'm going through the process of Jenny, teach me something and how the book is constructed. And then once again, how we de deconstruct that. Could you follow up on that? So I wanted to write this novel for about 20 years before I started writing it. I knew that I needed um, a much stronger skill set before I could I could sit down with this one. But I'd been thinking about it for a very long time. And I wanted to write a novel that captured the metamorphosis of society over a period of time, say 100 years. And then I decided that a great way to do that would be in an, a tenement building in Edinburgh. So the Edinburgh tenement buildings were like your skyscrapers, but hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years old. Right. And the very tallest ones, I think, were about 15 or 16 stories high. And my building, Lucken Booth, is the word comes from locked booth. So those were the very first trading areas in Edinburgh. So the silversmiths would come with little wooden booths Right. And they'd sell their jewellery. And Edinburgh's really hilly, so they would get very fed up. So they said to the council, can we lock our booths? And that's what Luckin Booth came from. It's also a piece of jewellery that protects against the evil eye. And I knew there was going to be something incredibly dark at the heart of this tenement building. And so I picked a building, 10 stories high, number 10, Luckin Booth Close. Right. And I wanted to travel through it for a hundred years, going through each decade. So you start on the first floor 
1910, and then you're in the second floor in 1920, third floor in 1930, fourth floor in 1940, and all the way up the building. So you get to meet all of these different people at different times in their lives, and sometimes overlap. Sometimes you think you know a story, and 20 years later, something happens and you find out something completely different about it, as we do in the buildings we live in. And when you walk up in Edinburgh Tenement, the, the, the stone is really worn. And you're walking over the footsteps of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of history. And you're just there for a little bit of time, that little bit of time that you're going to live there. And so I wanted the building to house these people and really get to know them. And the other thing I was interested in is that this is a, a story that takes place over 100 years. We start in 1910. Right. The devil's daughter arrives in Edinburgh. She takes a job working for the Minister of Culture, Mr. Adnam, a wealthy philanthropist and a, a, an opium-smoking sociopath. And she has this great library with all these amazing books and all these elaborate things. And she goes to the bookshop and she picks a parcel of, of books. And I wanted each generation in the building to be the most modern generation to itself. Nobody lives in a decade and thinks, oh, here we are being really old-fashioned in this decade. Right. And so we didn't invent sex and we didn't invent drugs and we didn't invent violence. These things have been here for time immemorial. One of my takeaways is I also have a lot, for better or worse, cultural references. And your book goes back and forth in time. And I'm thinking of H.E. Wells' Time Machine. And I love that. Now, I don't know if that resonated with you and I don't know what's inside of you to you bring it out. But the fact that you go back and forth, once again, I see these we're flashing forward, we're flashing backwards. I wonder what's going on. I also wonder about what happens to the characters when they're no longer in the story. Backstories are interesting, but I sometimes wonder what's happened to them after we're done with them. And I, I'm curious about your response to that. I think that when we live in, in buildings, that's what happens, you know? There's a neighbor we see for six years and they disappear and we don't know what, what happens at the end of their story. So the novel represents that. It represents that reality that there are people we still wonder about. So I lived in a really old, really creepy tenement building in Edinburgh that was partly the inspiration for this incredibly creepy building. And one day there was an old man from the ground floor and he had dementia and he used to come home with a little whistle and he would play his whistle on the way home. And I would walk slowly down the road with him and keep him company. And uh, he was quite unwell. And he said to me one day, I've taken a new name. My name's going to be Ian Vanderbilt. Okay. And I said, that is a good name. That sounds brilliant. I don't know what happened to him. I moved out, he moved out, different people moved in, but I was part of his story on that day in that moment. And that's what happens in Luck and Booth. We join the people for that particular period or that particular instance in their life. And they're all extraordinary. They're all extraordinary people in different ways. And many of them are people you would walk past in the street and not think twice about. And so I think there are a lot of ordinary people living through extraordinary realities, and I'm always fascinated by that. I want to go back to the character you referenced as the devil's daughter, um, Jessie McRae. And I, I locked onto that name because my daughter's name is Jessie. It's spelled differently, but it's always going to resonate with me. So I, I'm fascinated by uh, folklore, mythology, and things in that ilk. So I'm, I don't read a review of a book before I sit down to read it. And it was a great review in the New York Times of your book, by the way. And what I learned yeah. from that is how much I don't know, because the reviewer was much more well-versed and much more intelligent than I ever would be. But I didn't want to be colored by that until after I read the book. So when Jesse's coming out of the water onto the land, in terms of Irish mythology, I'm thinking of she's going to be a sulky. Well, she's not and everything unfolds from there. But that's my first thought. So when you sit down to write and you set things up, do you kind of kind of push us in a certain direction or you let us just go for, in terms of our own interpretations? 
I am happy for people to have their own interpretations. You know, Luckenbooth is a living thing. The lots of the, the the locations are still there. Lots of the streets, lots of the pubs, bookshops. It's a sort of living creature, and readers go and walk around right. parts of Edinburgh and they find the bits that they're connected to. So I've never felt like I should impose any meaning. I I wanted to explore the structures. I wanted to create a structure and then take it down one way or another. And so I'm a doctor of philosophy. I I, I studied structuralism. That's it's it's a big part of the foundation of all the work I do. Why do we live in the structures we live in? Why are we raised to think the things we think? And so those were things that I really wanted to explore through it, but via really good storytelling. And I didn't want to be exclusionary. I didn't want to be elitist. I wanted to grab you just like that guy does at the end of the bar who holds court for eight hours one night. Right, right. Once again, my guest is Jenny Fagan. The book is called Luck and Booth. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. And for better or worse, I'm the host, Larry Davidson. Now, when people look at a building or a home, the person who is about to buy that building or is the real estate agent says, this edifice has good bones. And in terms of the storytelling, that has a lot of impact for me because the building, in a sense, has unique bones and and part of the storyline is bones, connective tissue, and skeletons. Now, you can take that as far as you want because I don't want any spoiler alerts, but I'm going to mention um, some people in the book or characters. One is Levi. He was working uh, in a bone library at a veterinarian's office. And then you have Dot towards the end of the book, who may be the last residence of Luck and Booth. And I'm, and also you mentioned this once again. I'm learning something. There's something called Oracle Bones from China. I'm putting this all together. Yes, you said something that I really believe in. In an edifice, a building that can also be a character. And in your book, it is a very important character. But it's got good bones. There is connective tissue. Everybody has a story to tell over the length of the book. But these three characters, for me, kind of tie a lot of things together. And at the end. You have a triumvirate that we'll talk about, but that kind of rescues them in a sense. I'm throwing a lot of things out there. I'm going to let you yeah. run with that. Yeah. I mean, the building itself is sick. It's uh, William Burroughs puts his ear to the floor with a glass and he says this, this building is a psychic vampire. It's drinking the residents dry. And there's a huge event happens in number 1910 in flat 1F1 and Jesse McCree, the devil's daughter, curses the building. And that curse travels through every decade for the next hundred years. And I do believe that buildings carry their own imprint. They carry their own soul. They carry their own identity. And you can feel it here all the time. You know, the dead and the undead are never far apart in in old cities like this. We, We coexist right beside each other. And I was working in the Bone Library for a a while whilst I was writing Luck and Booth and I was engraving bones with poetry, my own poetry, uh, in an old building in Edinburgh called Summerhall that used to be a big veterinary training school in Europe. And so I was collecting these bones in the attic and taking them downstairs and then I was engraving them and really you have to go down to the marrow, you have to really work with the material that we come from and I think this idea that, you know, some some foundations are always going to be crippled, they're crumbling. So much of society is built on crumbling foundations and right. our buildings uh, host that. We live in them. We try and carve out our lives within them. So all of those things were really pertinent. And the bones of the building, the bones that, you know, Levi, for example, is building a mermaid out of bone. Um, which is an inadvisable thing to do. But um, yeah, they're they're all relevant and they're all pertinent. And actually all the bone artwork that I've done in the last couple of years is all going on display up in the old bone library in Edinburgh. So they were all very tied in. Life as art, art as life. It was all the same thing for me. For I was writing this for five years on and off and I was really living in it when I was doing it. Big takeaway, big takeaway in terms of my interpretation of the book. 
It's about female empowerment and seduction. What do you think about that? Well, I think seduction is always a part of life, and I think female empowerment should be at the forefront of all things. So I wouldn't disagree. I took a I took a male character, Mr. Utnam, who is the he's the minister of culture, and he is there in 1910, and he's very very influential all over the city. He's very very wealthy. He's very powerful, and the person that he is in private is completely, you know, completely different to what he represents publicly. And so you have these very patriarchal figures. If you want to take it all the way back to the beginning, you have the devil and you have the devil's daughter. Right. I don't know what's more patriarchal than that. And so, yes, those things are absolutely ardently part of the building. And there's so many amazing female characters in it. You have Agnes, who's a medium in the 1950s, holding a seance. You have Queen Bee who is uh, the member of a, a very stylish gang in Edinburgh who wear these animal masks and are about to go to war with the, the local triads. You have Ivy Proudfoot, who's in the 1930s and she's about 1940s and she's about to go to war as a spy. And she has an urge to kill, which usefully is about to be put to good effect in the war. She's just a young girl who works as a, she works in a shop as a store girl. And that did happen in the war. They would pick girls that, you know, wouldn't seem threatening, that wouldn't be caught out. And so she's really excited about what she's doing. She's having a relationship with her girlfriend, Morag. Morag ends up dating Levi. They go out dancing in a club in Edinburgh called The Pally, where everyone used to go. There's so many people in Edinburgh's parents met at The Pally. Everybody's parents met at The Pally at one point. And it had a rotating dance floor. So the next band would come on playing. So there was never a break in the music. And they didn't sell alcohol, but they had a bar called Cupid's Corner that would do fruit juice cocktails. And it was a huge thing. Sean Connery used to work there, apparently. He was a bouncer at the Pally. And so really, I wanted to I wanted to dip in and out of all these people's lives. But in the same light, I couldn't be lazy with my male characters. You know, so one of my male characters is he's an ex-coal miner and he's just, Ivor is absolutely wonderful. He's such an extraordinary guy and nobody would know it. Nobody would know what to look at him and he's dealing with homophobia, which is a severe fear of light. And he has hidden that. He's worked in the coal mines, which are, have been a huge industry in Scotland. I grew up in coal mining towns a right. lot. And so I had to have him there and he's doing something really hard. He's about to take a job stacking shelves in a, a supermarket. And he's a guy who's been trained to do a skilled job, a dangerous job that his father did and his father's father's did. And, and that community has disappeared. And he's taken this job because he wants to provide for his niece because his sister's unwell. She's, you know, using, using sedatives and all this kind of thing. And so we begin to realize that what other people would see in Ivar is not at all what he is. This guy's a hero, you know, he's an absolute hero and he's, and he's, he's gorgeous. He's just got the best soul an amazing taste in music. Can and I, so I, we, yeah, I just want to interject because you're kind of going where I wanted to go. So forgive me because what interests me also, a lot of writers put their love of music into the books, you know, George Pelicanos, Michael Connelly, I can go up and down the line. And I'm curious about your use of music because you mentioned Ivor and he's got this catalog of music, Dead Kennedys and Nirvana. And I just came across, I just downloaded their music, a hip hop group called Young Fathers, which is out of Edinburgh. And I just started listening to it yesterday because I wanted to see about your reaction to your taste mm -hmm. in music because it's in the book. Um, You've also got Skeeter Davis is in the book in another chapter. So how much of your love of music plays out and is referenced and reflected in the book? And I wonder if you're familiar with this group I just learned about, the um, Young Fathers. Case is my best friend. So he's one of the, the, the founding members of Young Fathers, and he's actually my neighbor. So we, we I, they are, I think, the best bands in Scotland, and the best band we've had in a long, long, long time. And we have some amazing bands. We've always had some really extraordinary music. I grew up playing in punk bands and grunge bands uh, from the age of about 15. 
So I was a singer and, and music is a huge part of my life. And I have a theory that writers quite often are either musicians or they're artists. Right. And if you really pay attention to the way they write, you'll find some, it will be slightly stronger in one area than the other. I adore art and I make art, but music is, you know, music is your soul. Music is the thing that you, you know, you can't let go. So all of that, it does filter through. And I, I had a, a friend's visit from America years ago and they arrived with some guy that they were seeing and this guy was really shocked by my my record collection. He was like, how do you know all of these bands? And I thought that was really funny. It was like, we don't live in a shortbread box, you know. <laughs> you know, the counterculture has always been really strong here. And I've always been massively drawn to that in this country and in every other country, because it's where you find the most interest in artists and the best musicians and the, the greatest writers. So that's always in there. It's always in my work. So let's talk about the number three. The book is broken down into three parts. Mm -hmm. There are three really important characters, mm -hmm. Jesse, Elise, and Hope. And mm -hmm. we just referenced Young Fathers, which I believe is a group of three. So for me, yeah. maybe this is a meant to be in terms of me trying to come up with something that's going to interest you in terms of a decent question but the number three kind of resonates with me how about you well i will tell you an unusual fact larry so when i was writing the book i needed a way to structure this hundred years so you have uh, three parts part one part two part three you have three decades in each part each decade is revisited three times and i wrote a draft around draft four or five, which I submitted to my publisher. And each chapter was 3,333 words long. All right. Or the entire book, which was a slight act of madness. But my, my publisher was like, this is extraordinary. I've never had something like this land. And I have no idea what we would do for foreign translations. And I realized that I'd been creating a corset for the book. It needed a shape, it needed pulled in tight. But as corsets do, when you then take them off, you get the shape. And one chapter goes a little bit longer, one chapter becomes a little bit shorter, and it finds the form it's meant to be in. And the number three was taken from the, the Wiccan principle of everything that you do will be returned to you threefold. So every act you commit in this world, well, karma, or however you want to put it, is all based on the Wiccan principle of three. and number three is an interesting number and so for this this book it's very strong all right so the book is luck and booth my guest once again is jenny fagan this is the podcast article periscope for the people out there to want to be writers what is your technique in terms of your rhythm when you write based on the fact that you have this very strong background in music now music has a rhythm in fact, I think the greatest storytellers, in a sense, are musicians because they have complete freedom and latitude to put across what's inside of them. So as a writer, how does the rhythm of music be reflected in what you do? I play with words. I play in the same way that I would play in a rehearsal room where I would go over the same songs over and 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 you riff and riff and riff. And then eventually it sounds flawless or it sounds like it came out like that or it sounds like you didn't spend all that time typing and typing and typing away. But I also write in a very stream of consciousness automatic writing space. I really don't put any limitations on myself whatsoever. I can lose six hours, eight hours, 10 hours and look up and the room's dark and I'm cold and, you know, I lose time. I lose substantial amounts of time when I'm writing. And I've worked hard to be able to get into that space and that mindset. And I do it every time I make art now, every time I write this, that's how I do everything. And I feel like when you're in that space, you're really heavily allowing the subconscious to bring forward all these great, extraordinary things. And that's the cleverest part of our brain. You know, the frontal part of the brain is like, I need to get a loaf of bread and I've forgotten something, right. all that regular stuff. 
but when you allow yourself to really just cut that loose and and right kind of in an altered state, a heightened state, that's where the really interesting material comes forward. But I edit very brutally. I edit in a really conscious, very mercenary way. And those two techniques have been the thing that have allowed me to, to push hard and create novels that I wasn't it was ambition over reason with luck and boo. You know, everybody I said I was writing this book to went, okay, okay. Right. And and now it's here and they love it. The writer, I think Gabriel Marquez said this. Um, I may be mistaking his name in a sense. Gabriel Garcia Marquez. He said, yeah. there, we, there's three parts of it to us. Our public self, our private self, and our secret self. How much of those three parts, and I'm fascinated, you, you really interest me in terms of what you bring in and your life, which we've been exploring over the, the length of this episode. I'm fascinated by, I want to learn more about your secret life. I think you're a very open person, but by definition, we have a public life, we have a private life, but what about your secret life? <laughs> I, I think that Writers don't entirely get to have a secret life. If we don't mine all the parts of ourselves, our work isn't rich. So there's a distance that happens later. You know, I sit down on stage and I meet other people and they've read my books and I feel like they've been in the same world I was in. And we get to compare notes on it. But I don't know how you experienced it. And you don't know how I experienced it. We just traveled through the same space. And so you brought your secret self when you were reading that. And I brought my secret self when I was writing it. And that's the great thing about novels. No two readings will ever be the same and nobody else will be able to see exactly what you see because you bring your emotions, your life, your history every time you read. Well, if I'm being honest, my secret life is nowhere as interesting as yours. That's why I'm just the interviewer and you are the creator <laughs> of this tr tremendous book. So once again, another cultural reference. You kind of talked about Agnes Campbell. And I think of the movie The Sixth Sense where the character says, I see dead people. Now, I haven't thought about Ouija board for decades and decades and decades. So it's in the book. I'm saying, yeah, I can't remember Ouija boards. But talk about how the seance is set up because it's so dramatic. It really it brings a lot of the characters in play, and you can talk about it as far as you want to go, but they're all there. They're all dealing with various issues coming from the same points of view but different points of view that you set up as a storyteller. So kind of set up the seance, and I believe there was a woman there, Dora Noyce, who was a real medium as opposed to your character, Agnes Campbell, who was a creation coming from your own mind. So Dora Noyce was actually a madam. She wasn't a medium. She was a madam. Okay. And she was a, a very notorious madam in Edinburgh. She had a, a brothel in a very, very wealthy part of Edinburgh for, I believe, four decades. And she was very well respected, very conservative, walked around wearing a fur coat. And if people went to visit her, she used to say that her establishment was like a YMCA with benefits. Okay. And you didn't go there and pick a girl because that's not polite. You would go and have tea and sandwiches in the parlor and you would get to know them first. And so Dora Noyce was a huge character. She was very, very interesting character in Edinburgh. And there was lots of people and things when I was covering these hundred years that I thought I can't not have them in there. So Dora Noyce is friends with Agnes. And Agnes is a medium and she is very frustrated because they're, they're at a point in history where the UK Witchcraft Act is just being abolished by Winston Churchill and has been taken over by the Fraudulent Medium Act, which means if you're a fraudulent medium, you can go to prison. And Agnes is really frustrated with the fraudulent mediums in time. And she comes home with some ectoplasm that she's taken off another one, throws it down the sink. Her husband's furious. He thinks she's going to block the sink with ectoplasm again. And they sit down to have this seance. And Agnes is able to pull in the past, the present, and the future. And all the things that are unseen in the building and all the acts that have been unseen, she's the one who can pivot all of those things, both 
in characters who've lived in the building and in their families and in events that have happened all around her. And it's a huge, it's a huge service to be able to accurately channel both what is seen and what is unseen. I guess that's what writers do if they're working really well. And yeah, the seance is really intense. It's, it's, it's a huge moment and it's almost like a massive peak that happens right in the middle of the book, yeah. right down the middle of the spine, you know? You cleaved it in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so I, you know, I've, I've always felt very, a very close affinity with the ancestors and the dead and all of those things. I don't talk about it often, but it's there. I go and stay in Shakespeare and Company in Paris most years, and they let me have their old apartment where the, the owner used to live. And they have someone de Bouvier's library, and you know, Gertrude Stein used to go there, and Henry Miller, and everybody, everybody, everybody went to Shakespeare and Company. And I always say when I'm there, the dead poets know you're there. The dead poets are not so dead in, in Shakespeare and Company in Paris. And I guess to me, these characters that are dead, living, in between, passed on, they're not so far either. And Agnes, my medium, is the one that pulls that together. I know James Jones' daughter, who wrote From Here to Returning, The Thin Red Line, and she grew up in her parents' apartment in Paris mm. and telling all the stories of the great writers that came into that home when she was a child. Before so the before, Yeah, before the family came back. To Wonderful. Yeah, so it's a, I'm just throwing that in because you just kind of it's a film. this is the beauty of sitting down and having people who are, who come from famous offspring and getting them to tell their stories. I want to go to now yeah. um, Queen Bee, and I'll tell you why. Once again, cultural references popped into my brain for better or worse. I'm thinking of two movies: Clockwork Orange, and also Quentin Tarantino's movie Kill Bill, because there's yeah. a scene. When you put these characters together with her quote-unquote gang, which I believe was, was a real gang in a sense, and also the, one of the scenes in Kill Bill where there is a, a conflict between Queen Bee and some members of the triad, and I'm just flashing, and I've seen these kind of things in terms of what you replicate, even though it's your scene in terms of operatic violence, if I can say that. It was important to really capture some of the violence properly in Edinburgh. You know, there is some, it's a very violent, very dark city in lots of ways. And there have always been gangs. There's always been, you know, gang culture. Eventually in the 80s and 90s, it became casuals or football casuals. Or, But a lot of the, the earlier, earlier gangs were, you know, pretty powerful. And uh, the original founders are the gang that I create in the 1970s. And Queen Queen Bee is a member. She's married to to the other one of the other heads of of the original founders. And they are about to go toe to toe with the local triads. And there have always been various different factions of different different gangs in in Edinburgh as well. And it's a small city, so it's it's always it's there. You kind of know it's there if you're. If you're in the knowing those things, it's right. n- none of it's very hidden. And Clockwork Orange was hugely important to me. So I read it when I was living in a children's home and I was 15 years old and I was getting in a bit of trouble as lots of kids in the children's homes do. And I was about to leave care, be made homeless. It was a big deal. And I read a Clockwork Orange and I was so shocked at the end that this guy was 15 years old. This character was 15 years old. Right. And the language, Nadsai, just blew me away. And so my gang, uh, the original founders, they dress like the characters in Clockwork Orange in a similar way. They have these animal heads that they wear, a fox, a wolf, different different characters, but they're very slick. They're very stylish. They have canes. They have these amazing outfits. And uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed, you know, mixing up that violence with that more kind of Tarantino-esque vibrancy you know right it's this huge psychedelic fish tank in there there's you know it's the 1970s and kind of peak deluxe version of of that but the violence is real and young people die and they die they die young and they're willing to do that because that's the lifestyle they lead 
I want to go to the beginning of the book. Uh, I do two things when I pick up a book. I do a couple of things. When I go to the beginning to look at dedications, and then I go to the end to look at acknowledgments, because acknowledgments speak a lot to me about who you need and feel responsible to thank, because what you do is a solitary effort. It's almost like you're in a solo, you know, all by yourself. But there's so many people below the iceberg to help put this book together. Pegasus Books, I love them. I love the publicists. They send me quality stuff all the time, and that's why I got your book. But there's a quote here in the beginning of the book from Hugh McDormand, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, and it's, this is it. Edinburgh is a mad god's dream. You want to talk? I mean, that kind of sense kind of sets everything up. And that's not his real name. I did a little bit of research. He's a very famous poet, but that's not his real name. Is that correct? That's right. So Hugh McDermott is one of the very, you know, officially sanctioned, you know, male, male poets. It was huge. And he's actually a drag ball in the 1920s. He's there. There's lots of different literary literary people kind of drifting in that, that drag ball in the 1920s. Um and Edinburgh is a kind of a mad god's dream, you know? We're built around this old volcano, this old dormant volcano. You've got the coast on the other side. You have this ancient city above ground. And underneath, you have a whole underground city that you can wander around. Right. And it, you can't get into most of it. If you go into the catacombs, you just won't come back out. Like, they're, they're really dangerous. You know, they used to take the bodies up there, Jekyll and Hyde, all those stories. They were all, all their origins come from here. And so I, I love the imagination that's been in this city at different times. You know, there's been great philosophers. We clone the first animal not far outside Edinburgh. And then you marry it with all these other things that are just so bizarre. And it was my love letter to the city. You know, I'm, I'm somebody who's never really had a home. I've always been on the move. I still feel like that now. But Edinburgh is one of my homes. It's been the longest. It's one I always return to. So, Jenny, as we as we wind down this first segment of the podcast, Artful Periscope, here's what I like to do. I always ask the guests, what did I miss and what did I get wrong? So what did I miss? And I'd got, if I got anything wrong, I usually do. Feel free. Um it doesn't bother me. And it's, once again, it's a learning experience for me to find out, well, I didn't do this correctly or right. So in the terms of our, our lengthy discussion, I thank you so much for your time, by the way. What did I miss and what did I get wrong? Well, thank you for having me on the show, Larry. I appreciate it. What did you miss and what did you get wrong? So luck and booth is pronounced luck. Luck and booth. Okay. So that's just... That's the way that we would pronounce it in Edinburgh. So I guess, you know, if there was anything wrong, I don't really like to say anything's wrong, but, but that would be that would be the only one. And what did you miss? What did you miss? What did you miss? I guess what we, we, we've not said so far is that the novel starts away in the Highlands, away in a little island in the middle of nowhere, and the devil's daughter is on a clifftop and her father, the devil, is there, and he's dead, and he's staring out to see the North Atlantic swells, and he has little, little round globes of ice on his eyelashes. And she takes her coffin that her father, the devil, built for her, and she drags it down onto the beach, and it creates a spine on the beach, like the spine of a book. And she puts it into the water, and she's says that's not what her father intended for her to be doing in it. But she sails away. She takes that vessel and she she uh, strides out. She doesn't know where she's going. And sometimes she sees a bit of land and she shouts out to somebody, where are we? And they cross themselves or they throw something at her because she's rowing in a coffin across the Atlantic, right. uh, across the North, uh, uh, in the North Sea, which is a rough sea. And for three days and three nights, she's out there back to three. And then she arrives on the shore and everything pivots around Jessie one way or another. As soon as she walks into this novel, it began to sing. And, and she's, um, she's the person that brings it all home, I guess. Well, Jenny Fagan, we're going to pivot to a break. Thank you so much. You're welcome to come back anytime. If you ever get to the stage, feel free to come and join us. I would love to sit face to face with you. you. 
you know, it's been a pleasure. And, and once again, I learned an awful lot. Jenny Fagan, thank you so much. I'm Larry Davidson. After the break, we'll be right back. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. I just want to talk about making judgments and issue around masks. And by the time you may hear this podcast, it may no longer be an issue. But I'm going to reference what my thoughts are about being judgmental. Now, when I go shopping, I've, I've been, I've had the booster, I've had all the shots. And by the way, the, the booster shot was the worst. It really was the worst. First one was okay, a little bit of fatigue. Second one, not much at all. The third one, boy, just kind of knocked me out. So I know why like, some people are complaining about getting the shots and the reaction to the shots. I'm not worried about getting a chip put into my body. That's never going to happen. But when I go shopping, and I'm wearing my mask, supermarket, where I'm going to be in, in terms of people come together indoors. I always have it on. And recently I was at my local supermarket in my area where I live. And I'm looking and I would say most people have the mask on, but one or two don't. And here's where I have to check myself because we've become so tribal. All the good guys are wearing the mask. They believe in science. And all the bad guys don't care, don't wear a mask. In the sense, they oppose to my point of view and what my belief systems. Then I start to think, that's kind of wrong. There are a lot of people wearing masks that may be totally opposed to my point of view and my value system, but they, they wear it. And there may be a lot of good people that don't have a mask on, and I'm making assumptions about them. So I had to kind of, kind of have to step back and think. Hopefully this will be over, but it's something that's incumbent upon me not to make snap judgments about people who don't look like me, who I think don't think like me because they don't have a mask on and they're in the other tribe that's different than mine. And I'm going to try to do better about that because eventually if we don't come together, we are going to be splintering apart. And I saw a small segment on whatever new show I was watching where one guy said, it was asked the question, he says, yeah, a civil war is coming. Now, there's a cold war happening in this country right now. But he says, yes, it's going to be a civil war and it's going to be uh, violent. And that's an American stating that, articulating that, that it's coming. It's coming. And boy, oh boy, I hope it's not. For people who think like me, with people who don't think like me, somehow, some way, we have to be accepting of each other and understanding that if we fracture as a country and all the permutations, we've all lost. I just got a new book sent to me that it, the book is called uh, Myla's Cat. The writer's name Myla Kassenberg, and it comes from my favorite publishers, Pegasus Books. And my frustration with this particular book, let me reference a few other books, because for my TV program years ago, I interviewed Daniel Mendelssohn, wrote the book called The Lost, The Search for Six of Six Million. And of course, if you go back on a previous episode, we had Erica Hecton here who wrote the book, Don't Ask My Name. And the reason why I referenced those books and Myla's cat, because she has passed away and none of her offsprings and her center family will want to do interviews. So I have the book and I'm going to read the book, but I'm going to go back to what Daniel Mendelssohn said about in his book, The Search for Six Million. What he's really saying in that subtitle of the book is called The Lost is the number six million is too much for us to process. 
and it loses I- impact. Six million, six million, six million. You hear it all the time. Well, it's not the real number. It's only a few people. It's more, it's less, whatever. And any big number. And what he's articulating is you have to reach somebody on a personal level to have impact in terms of all the events surrounding before, during, and after the Holocaust. And I want to read an excerpt because um, there have been a lot of books about a Holocaust. I once sat down with Thomas Blatt, who at the time that I interviewed him for a two-part interview, he was the last living – this is for a TV program, which you can find still on the website, the Four Village two, TV studio uh, under Watch Me Now, and there's a whole bunch of my old TV programs there. And just go to – go hit the tab, Watch Now, and they'll go to Davidson Company, and it's all there. But when I interviewed him, he was one of the last living survivors of Sobibor, a death camp. So the story became very personal for him and also for the people who watch that TV program because he's breaking it down to what happened to Thomas Blatt. I want to read an excerpt from the book called Mala's Cat. And it says, I was only 12 and a half years old when the shadow of the Third Reich fell across Europe as the nightmare of the German invasion of my defenseless country began, I was more concerned with my school books and my family and friends than the ramifications of war. I could not even begin to imagine the extent of the horrors that were soon to follow. So Erica Hecht has a story to tell. Myla Kasenberg has a story to tell. And Daniel Mendelssohn has a story to tell when he goes from six million to six. I'm Larry Davidson. This has been the podcast Artful Periscope. Till next time, bye-bye. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro, sound editors and engineer, Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, Visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at LarryDavidson'sProductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. Tie you to her